Welcome to Rogue Bogues. This is the My Journey series. Thanks for joining us. We are here, episode seven. So as I wrapped up in episode six, wrapping up college, obviously going to the NCAA tournament, having a very successful year from a team standpoint and an individual standpoint, it was now time to, to move on to the pros. So um, I'm not going to really go through too much of what happened here uh, individually because I have a, a very special guest coming on. His name is David Bauman, my lifelong agent, my Jerry Maguire. Um, I don't think he realizes how much of an impact he had on my life outside of basketball as he did on. Um, a very uh, well-spoken, well-groomed, uh, very well-educated, cool, calm, and collected, at least on face value at times. I know there were times where he was probably as panicked as I was about certain things, but he never showed his hand. And I think this episode is, outside of it being uh, part of the My Journey series, I think it can kind of be its own episode in a way um, because we, we go through how I hired him as an agent which a lot of it was dumb luck, I'm going to be honest, as we'll touch later. Um, we're going to go through the strategy of of going number one in the draft, being a top five draft pick, which we didn't know straight away. We started to figure out along the fly as a lottery happened and once we knew who had what draft picks, it's a pretty in-depth discussion around what we or David um, implemented to try and get me as high as I could in the draft and the strategy and the back and forth and all that kind of stuff uh, to get me in the best possible position for the draft. And it worked out sensationally. Obviously, the rest is history. There were some speed bumps along the way, some some things that could have really hindered me and hurt my draft stock. It was almost like a you know a Hollywood movie. So you know we touch we touch on all that in depth, and that's why I think this this episode is awesome um, because it can be a standalone away from the my journey. It can just be a What's in the mind of an agent representing a top five, top ten pick? What are they? What are they trying to do? And I think David really thought outside the box with a lot of things, and and had me do some some things that, as you'll hear, I didn't like doing, but now understand they were integral into into getting me, you know, into the NBA as a as a lottery pick and and as a number one pick. We touch on that. We touch on the lead up to the draft. We touch on the training regime. We touch on. Um, what we did off the court marketing wise, uh, meeting with teams, how we, how I presented myself, how David presented me. There were some, some big mess ups along the way, which we'll touch on for myself, dealing with media for the first time at, at large, mass media constantly with the lead up, dealing with that. I made some mistakes along the way, first to admit them. We'll touch on that. So the lead up to the draft and we, we touch on, you know, the actual draft, the four or five days before and after that, which were really, a nervous time for me, a, a pressure-filled time for me, having family and friends around, and then the partying that went on after, and all that fun stuff, and then the post-draft. You know, once you've been selected number one, the stigma and the pressure that comes with that. Going to a summer league, I think I got ejected from my first, sorry, my second summer league game. I got ejected from, didn't play well my first two games, and then the last three or four games of summer league, I actually played well. So the ups and downs of that, being a number one pick, and. <laughs> Yeah, I just think it was a great conversation. I think a lot of people um, that are fans of kind of the business side of basketball will really enjoy this one. Uh, there's a lot to dig out there. So without further ado, I'm going to get to this interview with David Bauman. I hope you enjoy it. So I'd like to welcome a very special guest to Rogue Bogues for our My Journey 
seventh episode, um, David Bauman, who was my um, agent throughout my whole career, still technically is, even though I'm retired, um, remain good friends to this day. Uh, a lot of a lot of good memories, a lot of bad memories, a lot of everything really. But um, I thought I'd get him on because very uh, smart guy, seen everything in the NBA, in 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 the lawyer world, all different dynamics, uh, family man. So. Someone I greatly respect and wanted to get on. So welcome, David. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So real quick, my college career ends, obviously, with a loss to Kentucky. So for me, I'm not knowing what the next step is. I immediately signed with with David Bauman um, of SFX Sports and his partner at the time with SFX, another guy named Artur Ashkovich, which we'll get to a little bit later. I didn't really meet with many agents. I um, The only other agent I met with, funnily enough, was a guy named Herb Rudoy out of Chicago. He was Tony Kukoc's agent at the time. The only reason I met with him was because of that. Tony Kukoc was, as many people know, a guy I looked up to, Croatian descent. He was one of the best Croatian players to ever play the game. So he actually called me to take that meeting out of the blue, never met him before, and that's the only reason I took it. But I still ended up um, going with David and SFX at the time. And, and to be honest, David, I don't know why I selected you guys, to be honest. If, you know, I was 19, 20, um, as we'll, as we'll talk about later, had, had no idea about anything real kind of, you know, nonchalant about the business world, how all that, that worked. And I imagine that's, you know, familiar for a lot of kids, but David's background real quick. Uh, the current CEO of Independent Sports and Entertainment, Executive Vice President and General Counsel. 26 years of experience as a licensed attorney and certified NBPA agent. He first started in 1992 with Fame Basketball, formerly worked for uh, Relative- Relativity Sports, Fame obviously, SFX Sports Group and Live Nation. Founded his own company for a while, DB Hoops in 2010 and, and prior to this, he was the president of SFX Basketball. So a native of New Jersey, lives in Washington DC um, currently. Wife Elisa, two kids, Jared and Ryan. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the background. You've been all over the place. But I guess let's first touch on when we first met because that's the context we want to try to build is we I didn't really spend a whole lot of time with you, but my father um, met yourself and, and, and Alex Rushkovich in 2003 at the World Championships in Greece. So just take us through that. Yeah, so um, I was – it was summertime. It was July of 2003. I was uh, at the beach uh, with my family on a vacation in, in uh, the shore of the state of Delaware, which is uh, about two miles from Washington, D.C. And I got a call from uh, my partner in Europe, Alex Roscovich, and he said, you know, you really should come over to Greece. There's this, you know, there's some, some amazing players, but there's this one particular kid, named Andrew Bogut from Australia, that you really should take a look at. So I looked at my wife. My kids were, I think, five and three at the time. And I said, honey, I'm sorry, but I probably have to go out for you know, a couple of days to Greece. So I literally up and left my family on the beach. And I went to, uh, to Thessaloniki, which is in the north of Greece. And it was the, uh, the 2003 World Championships. And I get to my hotel. I change my clothes quickly and I go to the gym. And I meet up with my partner. And I think you guys were playing. It was... Uh, I forget the game, Lithuania, Korea, it was one one of these early games. And it was a, it was a 15,000 seat gym, something like that. And there were like 2000 people there. And literally you were like killing it. You must've had 30 points and 20 rebounds or something like that. And Alex and I go to look for the Australian section, which is all in yellow. And then we look every time you score, I look for the two, two folks that are cheering and, and, and dancing and I see your mom and dad and I literally walk up to them and I 
extend my hand. I say, you must be Mr. and Mrs. Bogut. Your father said, yes. said, I'm David Bauman. I'm an American sports agent. I work uh, for the company that represents Michael Jordan. And he looks at me stunned. He says, Michael Jordan's agent is interested in my son. And that was how we met. Yeah. I mean, a pretty crazy story with how it all worked out. And I guess an appeal to my father at the time was your partner um, in the business, Artur Rashkovic, who obviously a Serbian, a Serbian guy. So being able to have him in your stable helped in this instance because of the, the, the Balkan connection. My father obviously being Croatian, they could speak the native tongue. So that was kind of a, a pretty good icebreaker for you and the company. Absolutely. And we just, we just hit it off. And, and I think I was respectful. I said, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Bogut, why don't we meet up after the game? And I can, I'd love to say hello to your son. And, and so we waited and I think you guys won pretty big and you had a big game. If I remember you had like this weird, like, like streaky hair. Um, <laughs> it was like silver and like blonde or something. Blonde, blonde. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, pretty funny. It was pretty nasty. <laughs> so we, we met after the game and then, you know, I said, Hey, let's, you know, we got to eat. Let's, let's go, let's go break some bread. So, uh, Alex Roscovich knew of a really good seafood place nearby because Thessaloniki was on the, on the water. And, you know, we all go walk across the street basically. And we sit down and all the NBA scouts are in the same restaurant. They all know me and we're saying hello. And I think a few of them said, Oh, of course you're speaking to Andrew Bogut. He's the best player in the tournament. And we sat down and, you know, we got the, the menus and your father said something, and I said something like, you know, Mr. Bogut, your son's going to have an opportunity to make a lot of money when this tournament's over. There's, you know, Greek teams and Spanish teams, and Russian teams, and, you know, he could play a couple of years in Europe and then go to the NBA. And your father says, David, why, I, something like, why would he do that? Like Rick Majerus would be really mad. And I was stunned. I said, Rick Majerus, what does Rick Majerus have to do with this? He said, oh, I guess he didn't hear. Andrew signed the national letter of intent like the day before he left for the tournament. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty spot on. I actually signed it the year before and then it expired and I, I signed it the following year. Um, and look, that was a pretty interesting time. I didn't have a whole lot of involvement with you. I wasn't at that dinner. That was just my parents and you. So I didn't really deal with the agent side of things that early. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I started getting offers which were crazy at that time and I discussed this on I think episode four or five and it was it was hard to turn down, you know. Um, we're from a, you know, a working class family that we had good years and bad years predicated on how my dad's business was going at the time and there were there were there were years where we didn't have a lot of food on the table and there were years where we could, you know, have a feast, um, if that makes sense. And to be offered a million dollars by, you know, some of these Greek teams, even Sabona tried to make a pitch um last minute when I holidayed in, in Croatia afterwards was pretty surreal. Um and we we kind of like I said, we were flying blind with how all this worked, had no idea. But I guess the staple of what my dad was saying was we gave our word or I gave my word to go to the University of Utah. And that was pretty important to me and I always had the mindset of that if if I go there and hate it, I can I can always sign those Euro deals and and yeah, I'll turn those down. And the crazy thing about it, Andrew, is um, once once your father told me that you were going to the University of Utah, NCA rules applied to that to that lunch or that dinner. And I was a certified agent. I was a lawyer. And even though we were in Thessaloniki, Greece, I, I had to make sure we followed the rules. Otherwise, you would have. You know, your eligibility would have been shot. So then I had to tell your father, you know, Mr. Bogut, I, I didn't realize that I can't actually buy you dinner. 
and his, his face got you know redder than it normally is. And he said, what do you mean? It, you know, this isn't, this kind of restaurant's not in our budget. And it was really embarrassing. And then there were some other Croatian guys that were in the restaurants and players and they came over and I guess they knew your dad and they started talking and they, they actually ended up buying all of us um, dinner. So the issue went away, but you know, I realized, you know, I had MBA scouts looking at other people looking and if I had bought your mom and dad lunch or dinner, your Utah career may have, you know, been over before it even started. Yeah, and that's an issue I've spoken about at length with the NCAA, which is a whole separate podcast. But yeah, it is it is that crazy. And like I said, we, we had no idea. I didn't even have an idea about the rules um, of the NCAA and even my father. So he probably thought at one point that you were talking shit and didn't want to didn't want to front up to pay the meal, knowing how, how fiery <laughs> he gets. But um, that's, that's the craziness of the NCAA. To this day, Andrew, I believe it wasn't just getting in early and meeting you and your parents early. I believe it was the attention to the detail and and the fact that we were professional and, and did make sure we followed the rules. Oh, no doubt. And I think that's important, um, especially when you got like a kid or kids that don't know, you know, we don't know what the hell's going on with half these rules and what you can and can't do. And I mean, like I said, for, for a working class family to be taken to dinner by an agent and they tell you that they can't pay, it stuns you at first because you might think, you know, are they talking shit? But then when you actually sit down and think about it, you're like, no, this makes sense. They would love to buy us dinner and schmooze us and, and get us over the line that way. So the fact that they brought that up, I mean, was, was very, very important. Um, I do remember a funny story. I don't know if it was at that dinner. It was later on down the track, which we'll get to about Arto. You'd have to remind me to, to bring it up. But one other thing I forgot to bring up, you got, you got um, this might lighten the mood a little bit for this podcast. You got two kids, Jared and Ryan, right? Yes. Who's your favorite? <laughs> um, Jared's my favorite oldest son, and Ryan's my favorite youngest son. So you, I got got this info that I had to ask you that question. So I, I've always been diplomatic. You've known that about me, Andrew. Yes, but your, your kids want an answer. They've, they've they've stitched you up and sent this in, so you got to answer it. Well, they don't ever get the answer. It's whoever whoever's nicest to me that particular day. Um, but we're blessed. They're both at Vanderbilt at the same university, so um, they're actually best of friends, and and we get to. Uh, to know that they're enjoying their college experience together. Yeah, I had to get that one out because they um, reached out to me behind the scenes to try and put you under the pump, but that didn't go too well. You're always cool, calm, and collected for the most part, which is what you want in an agent, I guess. Um, but mm-hmm. I guess then we we keep in touch, you and I, I guess. I mean, what would it have been throughout throughout my freshman year, maybe m- monthly, like just just check in every now and then, if that. It wasn't very often um, because, of, because of rules and all that kind of stuff. And then... I go over to the Olympics, have a great Olympics, which then helps my stock again in the NBA draft boards, and then come back for my sophomore year. Now, during my sophomore year, um, I explained in the last episode, I had Ray Jacoletti on, who, who you know very, very well and had a lot of dealings with. And yeah. There were a little bit of, you know, some teething issues when he got the head coaching job. We got into it a little bit. And I remember the day, I, I can't, um, it would have been the first or second week of our season or preseason, actually. We were still playing D, D2, D3 schools. And I got into it with Jack Liddy at a practice session. I left fuming. He was fuming. And I remember calling you and basically saying, like, get me the fuck out of here. Um, I don't want to be in college anymore. I want to sign pro. And looking back, I don't think it was really something that Ray Jack did. I think it was just the, the battering that I, I received from Rick Majerus on a daily basis, kind of being so, not sold a lemon, but you know how college is. They, they tell you you're going to be the world and everything's fine. And then once once I got there, it was completely different. And then having a great Olympics, then coming back and then a new coach, new system, a little bit of frustration. Do you remember the phone call I made to you? I, I do. Um, 
and and what I remember about about Coach Majerus, you know, may he rest in peace. Um, I, he he would break down players for the first two years. He would start to build them back up junior year, and then senior year they would be you know an All American. And that was, you know, Michael Doliak and Keith Van Horn and guys like that. And you never had that chance. So you sort of were just broken down at your first year. And if I remember, I think you told me this a long, long time ago, you, you were sort of hazed as a, as a, as a, as a freshman. The, the older kids would like, you know, they'd, they'd beat the crap out of you in practice. And you started doing that your sophomore year. But it was with Ray Giacoletti and it was different. You know, he didn't, he didn't expect that from you. And, you know, he, I think you called me and complained and said you wanted to go to Greece. And then Coach Giacoletti called me and said, Andrew's about one day away from getting kicked off this team. Said you weren't being a leader. You were like sucker punching your teammates on screens. You were just like, you were just out of control. And then I think he also said that you embarrassed him in front of the team. Like, you know, you just screamed and yelled and, you know, he's trying to solidify his position. So I think you were both sort of learning each other and it was like two alpha males trying to figure each other out. Yeah, no doubt. And like I said, I I remember distinctly driving back to my apartment complex um, and calling you. And then I think Jack Letty gave me a day off to to rethink things. And then it was kind of crisis meetings between you and I. And and you're probably the conduit between, you know, Ray and I. And then basically said, you know, you're an idiot. If you want to go to Europe, you're a moron. Like you're, you're basically guaranteed to be a top 10 pick right now or maybe top you know at that point might have been maybe maybe first round mid first round but um it would severely hurt your stock blah 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 just be patient and um i guess i was looking for a a shoulder to cry on and i think we weren't obviously formally engaged in any agreement because we couldn't be because i was in college still but i think i appreciated as much as you don't want to hear it you know you want i I would rather in that moment i would rather if someone said yeah you're right you know that they're screwing you you know typical AAU coach or family member telling you what you want to hear, but you kind of didn't. And you, you kind of, you know, put a rocket up, up me a little bit and said, you know, you need to, you need to fix this and you need to um, get back um, off your horse and, and go and talk to Ray. And, and that's kind of what I did. And, you know, I don't remember if it was right after this, but I knew I flew out. Um, if it wasn't the next day, it was, you know, a few days later and, and you and I spoke in person. And I, and I remember telling you, if you were going to do this and if you were going to go to Europe, you should have done it in August and not come back for your sophomore year. But when you came back for your sophomore year, you're going to hurt your image with the NBA teams if you quit on Utah. And all of that resonated with you. You went back and you you made right with, with Coach Giacoletti and with the team. And after that, you went on to be, you know, obviously the best college player, you know, in, in college basketball that year. Yeah, and that's, that's a hard thing to do. I mean, like I said, I kind of, you know, the Majer- going back to the Majerus thing, his whole thing was, you touched on it briefly, that he would, he loved three to four year players. He loved guys that would stay th- in his program throughout. And I came in pretty hyped up and he hyped me up from what I heard before I even got there. He was telling all the guys there, this guy's going to kick your ass. So they, you know, seniors on, on that team hated me before they knew me just because Majerus was railing him about me. And then his whole strategy uh, was was he try to break down a player their freshman year, even their sophomore year, and then try to build them back up, and then you know they get to junior senior year and they're obviously very thankful for what he's done for their career. But I felt like I was ahead of that curve, like curve, um, you know, coming in as a freshman. But then going on to Ray Jacoletti, it was kind of like, okay, is this a, another coach that's going to tell me what I want to hear, and then you know, kind of batter me down? But you know, I, I made a mistake with that, and Ray was one of the best coaches I've worked for, one of the one of the best people I've worked for, and it was a little blip. 
in 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 the in the journey, but it, it worked out perfectly because I think we both kind of um, you know barked at each other a little bit and you know like two dogs you know in a yard kind of thing and and territorial and then once we got over that it kind of you know it was a blessing because it it really excelled everything else moving on to that season and you know it, it's hard for for people like me and, and coach jackalady sometimes to understand this but you were 19 years old you were the same age as my younger son ryan now and you know we always think of you oh you're you know seven one you know 250 pounds you know you're a, you know you're a grown-ass man but you still are going through you know, the adjustment between being, you know, a young man and a man and, and going through these, these, this experience. So, you know, you played the Olympics, you started, you know, you didn't have any vacation, any downtime, and then you just all of a sudden are back in school and, and you're practicing. So I, I think you were due for, you know, for, for, you know, to lose your shit, you know, once in a while, and you're certainly entitled to that. Yeah. And like I said, this is, uh, you know, for all the listeners, it's it's the unknown that was probably stressing me out as well. It's a journey that you, you can't really teach someone. Um, you can't really help through until you've experienced it. And, and it goes from freshman to Olympics to sophomore year. Then all of a sudden, you've got all these agents, big name agents want to meet with you. And then I've got, you know, Rick Majerus's friend is an agent. And then they're, you know, whatever it is, there's all these people trying to get to you. And even dealing with that was pretty hard. But I guess after all that, you know, have a great sophomore year. Um, basically, within a week of the Kentucky game, you know, you fly out to Salt Lake City. My, my family flies out, my mum and my dad, and um, we basically have a meeting and say we're going to declare for the draft. So we call a press conference, declare for the NBA draft, um, and I announce, you know, yourself as, as my agent, SFX Basketball as my agent. And and then it was, for me, it was kind of preparing for the unknown, and that's where, you know, you were an integral part to, to the lead up to the, um, to the NBA draft. But I remember going to that, that press conference and and kind of I was I was a little bit kind of sad about it because I really really enjoyed that that sophomore year in Utah but I'd probably be crazy to go back for a third you know a, a, a junior year and risk injury and risk draft stock but um, I just remember how you know how happy I was with that moment as well being able to have a chance now to to, to be a full time professional but um, what do you remember about that day you know of the announcement of of you know entering the NBA draft formally. Yeah, well, as usual, your memory is a little bit fuzzy. So I was watching the game on my couch in my living room, uh, the Kentucky game. I, I decided not to go to the tournament because it was easier to just you know, sort of leave, leave your family, give you guys space. I think, you know, I think you had like, you know, a double double against Kentucky. They had those three seven footers and you guys just, you know, couldn't compete. You called me from the locker room and you said you were really bummed to lose. You had a great time at Utah, but you're ready to make this decision and you asked me to come out like tomorrow to put the plan in place. And it was already after midnight my time, but it was like 11 something your time. So you were talking about tomorrow, Saturday. I thought you were talking Sunday. I literally had to get a flight and five hours later I was flying out to Salt Lake city. So it wasn't a week. It was the next day you wanted it done. Okay. <laughs> I'm usually pretty good with this kind of stuff, but that's great. No, you, you wanted it done. I met you at the Grand America Hotel. I think your parents were in the country already because they had been yeah, going to the tournament yep. games. Yep. So we all met at the Grand America. Um, Ray Giacoletti met us there. I don't remember. I, I, you signed that day. I don't know if it was that, that morning or if it was later that day after we talked a little bit more, but you signed the paperwork. We then planned the press conference. You announced your... Communities do the Bogut, what was it, Bogut for Community Foundation Foundation, yeah. You know, the benefit, it was like Australia, Croatia, Utah, and Milwaukee. Um, yep. Yeah, Milwaukee. 
And then you also donated money to the university and you announced that at your press conference to help like with the men's locker room. So here you are, not even drafted yet, and you're already giving money away. And that was all part of like the strategy of making sure people understood that you were not just out the, out for the money, you're out, out to help, you know, give back a little bit. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I think, look, at that point, it was, I was kind of stressed about, okay, so now I'm entering the NBA draft. I had no idea what, what that meant. Um, and that's why I guess I wanted you to fly out, wanted wanted to have that that talk about what's what's the next plan. And um, after some dialogue, we announced, you know, entering the NBA draft, all that stuff. It was, okay, what next? So, you know, a concern for me was staying on campus, the distractions of, of everything a campus life has, even just being able to have the right amount of workouts, NCAA rules, all that kind of stuff was up in the air. So after some long conversations, and, and I guess you'd always had it in the back of your mind, we figured it was in my best interest to, to leave school immediately. So I think it was late March um, at the time, early April, somewhere around there. And I didn't finish classes for that semester. Um, and look, I've been honest on this podcast, you know, class was definitely not the number one thing for me going to, going, to, going to college. It was basketball was number one, two, and three, and then class was four. Not to say I actually didn't do well in school. I mean, I, averaged, uh, I was at a 3.0 pretty much throughout throughout college. So that's just one of those things that my focus was so much on basketball. But uh, we, we come to the decision of, of, of having me base myself in Washington, D.C. or Maryland, which was right near your office and your home. Um, and then you would you basically would set up, you know, Everything workout-wise, everything training-wise, accommodation in what I think was a motel. Was it even a hotel? Was it a motel? Uh, motel, hotel. I, <laughs> either way, they, they knocked it down. It's now a Whole Foods, which is you know one of the high-end grocery stores in, in, uh, in America. Yeah, but um, I mean, take us through that plan and, and I guess getting me over there to be able to be not only under your nose, but get the right amount of, of, of workouts in. Now, keep in mind that at that point, we probably still, right after I declared, where would you say I was probably picked to be drafted? Was it, was it top five top five or top 10 at that point? Yeah, so, so that's that's an interesting thing. So some of your listeners are probably saying, well, you know, Andrew went number one. He was clearly the, the number one player all season. I believe you started the season in the 20s in some of the mock drafts. Yeah, late first, yeah. Um, yeah, so like, you know, 20 to 30. And then as you played well and you guys won like a bunch of games in a row and you started, you know, becoming a double-double machine, you moved up to like the lottery. And so by the time you got out to DC, you were probably like late, like eight to 12, eight to 15, maybe seven to 10, something like that. Uh, and it really was going to depend on the draft order because of, you know, team fit and, and team need. Um, you know, there were a lot of good point guards in that draft as well. So when you get to, when you get to, to Washington DC, you know, we're just trying to, really focus on like, you know, you had a typical European body, you know, you had, if I remember correctly, you had you know, higher body fat than we really wanted. And so we got you on a good eating program and made sure that you, you know, just started working your butt off, um, legs, core, things that you didn't really do in college. We started doing because that's what the NBA needs. Yeah, I think your memory is a little jogged. I was, I couldn't put on weight. My body fat was okay. I, I, I couldn't put on weight. I was, I think I came out at 225, I think, um, after mm -hmm. my sophomore year. And a concern for me was that was, 
you know, the era of the Shacks and Ben Wallace and Yao Ming and like, holy shit, like I'm I'm supposed to play the five. I can't hold my own against these guys. So we, we really hit the weight room hard. I still didn't put on a whole lot. I think I got up to, I think I was 240 or 245 for my rookie year. But yeah, I put on put on about 15 or 20. Um, but look, there were some intense workouts. We we worked out with a guy named Bebe. I still remember him. He worked off a boxing clock, funnily enough, for all our workouts, uh, all our basketball workouts. And I guess this is where... The strategic part of entering the draft comes into play because as it as it kind of went further and further to towards first off the lottery, you know, we, we were kind of we went from top ten to okay, it's probably going to go top five, and then it was a matter of waiting for who was in the lottery, and then um, I still remember that night. It was you know you invited me over to your house and we watched the lottery together. I think you cooked some steaks on the barbecue or something like that, and um, we sat back and 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 watched that draft night, hoping to. See, you know, who had the who had the one, two, three picks? Yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting time because you know if the ping pong balls didn't go in the right direction, you know, you could have been fourth or fifth, which in the scheme of things wouldn't have been awful, but it would have cost you money. And you know, obviously at that point you were all in; you wanted to go as high as possible. It was, um, I think, Atlanta had the most number of ping pong balls. I think it was like Toronto was up there, Golden State, New York. Milwaukee, uh, Charlotte, New Orleans, Portland, and Utah. I think had, yeah. I, think, I think Portland had three, you know, Utah. And, um, the interesting thing, Andrew, is like, you know, we, we, we sort of threw the, threw the mold out with you. You know, I learned from David Falk, who at the time was you know, probably the, the number one agent in, in the NBA. And basically, I just tried to make the Andrew Bogut game plan, and it would be different than anything that we had done. So, for example, I remember suggesting to you, why don't you write handwritten letters and we can fax them over to some of these teams in the lottery that you want to go to? And teams like New York and a few of the bigger cities that you didn't want to go to, we just will ignore them. And you ended up sending, I don't know, five or six handwritten letters to these teams just wishing them well in the lottery that night. And I got a couple of calls from people saying, we've never in 20 or 30 years seen a player do this. And it was just part of the, the PR campaign, just to put you out there as a good guy, somebody that they could rely on. He's not going to be a, a you know a, a distraction, um, and he's going to be a good, uh, just a good person on their team. Yeah, and I probably wanted to fire you on the spot because I'm like, dude, I just left school. I don't be, I don't want to be writing letters and essays at this point. I just want to play basketball, knowing how fiery I was. But uh, yeah, it worked out real well, and that were just some of the nuances that I learned from you and that you guys and you specifically kind of structured within getting drafted it wasn't it, we didn't just leave it like most athletes do like you know uh, i'm just going to show up for my workout do well and that's it and then they pick who they pick we, we try to do a lot of groundwork around that but um so anyway the, the the lottery comes out milwaukee sneaks up i don't know what their chances were they they, they they had a very rare chance of getting the number one pick and they end up getting number one atlanta goes two and number three was Utah, I believe. Well, it was it was Portland, and then Utah traded with Portland. Okay, yep. So Utah ended up with three, though, right? And I guess then we we kind of knew. Look, Milwaukee just I think they just signed Dan Gads reach to a, to an extension or a six year deal, so they, he was a backup big for him. So we knew they didn't have a starting big. Um, Atlanta was kind of in the same boat. They had I think Zaza might have been there at that time, so they didn't really have anyone. So we we kind of figured that they're pretty good chances to take me and. So then all of a sudden, the strategy had then flipped from five to 10 teams to, you know, two, maybe three. So explain how that 
was all formulated and and then what that led to as far as my workouts and and what I was trying to do to to get ready for for working out for those teams yeah so once once we knew the results of the lottery it was it was very obvious you were either going to go one or two and it was at that point it was a two two man race between you and and Marvin Williams chris paul interestingly enough is going to probably be the hall of famer out of that draft class and he went four. You know, he he was seen as possibly a little undersized. And these teams were just drafting based on team need. And Milwaukee certainly needed a center. They did not need a point guard. And they felt that your 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 passing ability, your your uh, ability to get up and down the floor, was something that they really could use in their in their offense. So at that point, on that lottery you know lottery night, we knew I knew you'd be one or two. And so. We, we no longer had to address some of the other issues, some of the athleticism issues and some other things. We really just had to get you ready for a one and a half hour one on none workout. And we spent the next roughly four weeks doing that. Yeah. And, and that, to me, that was a little frustrating. Um, so there were some other guys that I stayed with, Drago Pasalic, who um, I'm still friends with this day, a Croatian player. He was kind of potentially a second round pick at that point. And there was another kid there named Nemanja Alexandrov who. Ended up getting hurt. I believe you had him, and he was potentially going to be a, a you know lottery pick the following year, but did his knee, had a bit of form yeah, issues, ACL surgery, yeah, yeah, and then just could never get those legs back. And, and now I think he's still playing in, in a lower level uh, league in Europe somewhere. But so Alexandrov wasn't working out. Drago Pashlich was kind of my workout partner with Bebe. So I used to go, we used to work out every day, lift together, and then that was the only competitive basketball I got was one on one with Drago and. He was a four five as well, um, so we had some battles, and we ended up being good friends because of it. But Drago would then go and play. Uh, we used to work out at Georgetown for the most part, and he used to go and play five on five with a lot of the Georgetown open gym guys, like from Georgetown University. And there'd be a few NBA players there. I remember Mike Sweetney used to come down sometimes, and I don't know if you remember, but I, I, I asked you a few times, like, "Let me play. Let me just play a couple. Of, <laughs> let me play in a couple of these games," because I was just. I was just so sick of doing individual workouts. Um, as much as I wanted to get better, I was like, I need to, I need to play some basketball. And you were, um, yeah, you were adamant on hell no, you might get hurt. Um, and yeah, I guess explain, explain the thinking behind all that. Yeah. So, so first of all, Bebe, um, Bebe's nickname, it's a nickname. It's Don and He was one of the first, uh, the first guys to go in the first round under John Thompson at Georgetown. And, um, he actually was the trainer for Ewing and, and Alonzo Mourning and I think Matumbo as well. Those were all our players. So Coach Thompson, you know, was a great guy, big supporter of our company and allowed us to have access and Bebe as well. But Bebe knew what he was doing. He put you through, you know, individual workouts every day that rivaled what the NBA teams were doing. You know, you did the mic and drills, you did, you know, uh, you know different layups. They, he worked on your, your hook shots, your banks, your pump fakes, things like that. And it was an hour and a half. I think you were putting up 500 shots a day and, and then you were, you were done. Drago would go and he'd play for another two hours. What you have to under, what you understood, you didn't understand at the time, but you understand now players would have been going gunning for you. Who's this, who's this big white kid? He's not that good. He's going number one. Let me see what I can do. Then you start getting some bows. You start, you know, you break your nose, you know, you, you possibly step on somebody's foot. So there was just no scenario that we were going to be comfortable having you play, even one-on-one. And to be honest, Andrew, like we'll talk later about you know the Summer League. It showed because by the time you got to the Summer League, you hadn't played in three months. Yep. Yeah. But the other, the other part of it was in, 
it's interesting. Your father was very, you know, hands on. He kept calling me and getting updates and he was calling you as well. And you were just exhausted. You were doing, you know, six days a week, you know, two a days basketball in the morning and you were doing Kevin Maselka and elite physique. You were doing all the physical stuff in the afternoon with legs and whatnot, but you were doing unique, like, if you remember like what was it, the movie Rocky where maybe it's Rocky three where Rocky was like chasing the chicken and carrying the logs and Drago had all this like, you know, computerized stuff in, in Russia and you know Soviet Union. And you were basically doing like the Rocky stuff. You were taking sheets of newspaper in each hand and you were rolling them up to get your hands stronger. You were sticking your hands in buckets and, and you know, rolling up rice. And you were doing plyometrics and running on, um, like the ladder drills to get yourself, you know, your foot speed. And your dad called me one day. He said, David, Andrew's been telling me what he's been doing. And this is no way to prepare my son for the NBA. I said, Michael, with all due respect, we're not preparing Andrew for the NBA. We're preparing Andrew for a one and a half hour workout with Milwaukee and a one-and-a-half-hour workout with Atlanta, he's going to go one-on-none. Maybe there'll be a five-foot-two overweight coach posting him up, but he's not preparing for the NBA. The NBA team will do that after the draft. And uh, it was eye-opening for your father as well. Yeah, because it's just not – I guess it wasn't normal from what I was used to. You know, in college, um, it was work on your game a little bit, do a bit of individuals, and then who are we playing? Open gym, five on five, let's go at it. And I guess I just missed that competitiveness and not understanding all the all the stuff between it. But like you said, this wasn't um, a strategy that was getting me ready for my first NBA game. It was a strategy to get me ready to be drafted the highest I could possibly go. And and those look, those workouts, which we'll touch on, once I got to, you know, Milwaukee and Atlanta and did those workouts, they were probably harder in in a in a sense than being with four or five guys because number one, I was getting no rest between drills because it was just like, okay, next thing, okay, next thing, quick water, next thing, next thing, next thing. Um, I didn't have a chance to show the competitiveness side of my game where, you know, one-on-one with someone or two-on-two and, and they're all really important parts of my game, especially my passing. So, I couldn't really show any of that. All I could show was that I could handle the ball for a seven-footer, I could pass and, and could shoot with both hands, do a whole lot of different things out there. So, those workouts actually were harder than people think, the one-on-one with the, the one-on-zero with the chair or one-on-one with the chair. Um, and that's what people don't realize. But yeah, like the strategy was to get ready for that. And But you know, when you're young, 18, 19 years old, and you've got an agent telling you, do this, do that, do this, you're like, what the hell is going on here? Where am I? Exactly. Yeah. But we did have a plan and we stuck to it. And, and I give you credit. You, you know, you didn't really buck against what we were recommending. You, uh, you accept all of our advice. You also, um, loaned me some money. I don't know if you remember that, uh, where basically I'd come out of college, um, and had to obviously just move and then become somewhat functional adult. I wasn't full adult yet because I was staying at a, at a hotel motel. So that was all taken care of with utilities. But people don't realize you don't get paid in the NBA till November 15 is your first check. We were in negotiations for a shoe deal and all that. Obviously, we hadn't um, solidified anything waiting to get drafted and all that. But um, I think it was, was it 150K? I think it was. You, you guys loaned me? Yeah, that, that sounds right. So, you know, first of all, like even when I went to Utah and, you know, we would go to dinner, it was a negotiation because we had to go someplace where, you know, you could afford, you only had, you know, a couple of dollars in your pocket each time. And, you know, because you were so well known there, I couldn't buy you dinner there either. 
So I, I was keenly aware that you didn't have any money. So, you know, we did offer to give you an advance on your first paycheck. So I think it was $150,000. I think we probably wired it over to Australia. So your parents, you know, would have access to it and would be able to take care of whatever you and the family needed. But, you know, me and my company, we took care of everything else, as you remember, like the training costs, you had food. I think you guys were over at my house four or five times a week for barbecue. And my wife was, was cooking and we were making salads and trying to eat healthy. And my sons were just thrilled to have these, you know, a couple of seven footers hanging around. They were, as I said earlier, they were like five and three years old. So that was, that was interesting. But yeah, you, you were, you were broke and, um, and we needed to make sure that, you know, it wasn't embarrassing for you and your family. Because that's the biggest, that's the trickiest thing when, with this transition, you know, from making, you know, having no money at all to making millions, there's a transition. And a lot of it involves, um, you know, being respectful of, of you and your family along the way. Yeah, well, I think we were VIPs at the, I think it was the Denny's around the corner from my apartment. That, that's where we were VIPs. It was, you know, $6 eggs, eggs, bacon, potatoes. So that's kind of where we frequented. I, I remember we actually had our meeting there. When the whole Ray Jackaletti thing happened, it was always at Denny's, so I could at least... Yeah, it definitely was Denny's. I remember that. <laughs> Pretty cool. But, but after, I remember people recognizing... Yeah, but people uh, recognized you, and like I, I would have screwed both of us if I had bought you know, I'd bought you dinner. And believe me, I wanted to. Oh, no doubt. And I, I, think I've, I think I've bought you a lot, a lot of dinners over the years, so I think I've made up for it. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Always gave you the check. Um, so then, look, the, the lottery gets announced. Um, it was top two, as we said. We go and work out with Milwaukee. We go and work out with Atlanta. This is where the strategy you implemented of, of keeping it very, very business-like and not keep not treating it as as you're an athlete or a jock going for for a tryout. Um, and 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 what I mean by that is you literally made me wear a suit everywhere. I hated it. I did not. I didn't even know. I knew how to put a tie on because I went to a Catholic school, but I did not know anything about suits. Did not know anything about matching your belt with your socks. You know, color coordination. I mean, my my uh, button-up shirt in school was a short sleeve button-up shirt. So I didn't even know there was long sleeves. I was like, "Why do people wear long sleeves? You sweat too much." So I had no idea about dress sense. And your whole thing was you got to wear you wear a suit whenever you go to meet with a, a team or an appearance or a, or a dinner. I think we did the the college awards. Made me wear a suit for all those, and I absolutely hated it. Um, and I also remember one thing I've, I remember to this day that you used to do. So I had no idea about fine dining or even like formal dining. So still to this day, I struggle with the places that have four or five forks and, and all that and four or five knives, which one's for which. I always just grab the biggest one and then just ask for another one for my next setting. That's still what I do. But your big thing was the napkin on the lap. So most nice restaurants, they bring out that nice linen um, napkin. You're supposed to put it on, on your lap and Whenever you need it, you, you use it. And I, I, you always told me, put your napkin on the lap. And I never remember. And then we go to dinner with, let's say, the Milwaukee execs or, or Atlanta. And you would, you would basically pick your napkin up and hold it up like a sheet of paper for a second. Give, yeah. me, give me like, not a death stare, but like, hey, put your fucking napkin on. <laughs> and then I'd be like, oh, shit, yeah, I got to put my napkin on. But that was part of the strategy too, right? Uh, of course. Uh, first of all, on the napkin, I was more worried that y- you were the kind of person that would punch the waiter if you tried to put the napkin in your lap for you. <laughs> <laughs> so I was concerned about that. Um, look, I, even to this day, Andrew, I'm having a meeting. I'm in, I'm in LA now. I'm having a meeting tomorrow um, with a potential top 10 recruit. And my mantra for all of these workouts is treat it uh, like it's a job interview. You know, be extremely professional. While, yes, things are, are very casual, you can wear shorts and cut off t-shirts and have your headphones and you walk off the plane and go to your workouts, but I always prefer that you show the team that you're treating this like a job interview. And 
That's exactly what we did. I recommended you wear a suit and tie on the plane, even though it was, you know, 90 degrees in June as we go to Milwaukee. Um, I tried to make, make you comfortable with eating out at nice, nice restaurants so that, you know, I mean, I don't want to like make fun of you, but he knew like gazpacho is cold. Like you don't send it back and say this soup is cold. I mean, I just wanted to make sure yeah, that I did you, that. I've done that before. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that you, you know, because you're, you were a fish out of water. You're, you're going from, you know, eating $6, you know, fast food sandwiches in Utah and not having any money to all of a sudden having millions of dollars. So it was a transition. And I just wanted to make sure that part of the interview process was that, you know, you were comfortable with that. Um, I remember suggesting that we do a, a resume for you. Um, because when you go on a job interview, you give the interviewer a resume. And so you gave, you, you handed Senator Cole, who owned the Bucks, you handed him a resume and he was just flabbergasted. He was floored that you were in a suit and tie. You had done some research on his committees that he served on in the U.S. Senate. Um, you really did a good job. You did your homework and it really showed. And don't forget, all, all you guys were young. Marvin Williams was a freshman, Deron Williams, Chris Paul, and even you were only 19 or 20. I mean, you'd been around the world. You'd played in the World Junior Championships. You'd played in the Olympics. You'd come from Australia. So you were much more mature than them and more worldly. And I wanted that to show, and I think it did. Yeah, and I think you're overblowing how, how well I did it. It was taken from you. I mean, you, you were the one. You can, you know, we can be honest on this. I'm not embarrassed by it. I, I had no idea about fine dining. I had no idea about suits. And I used to push back, push back against you with, why the fuck do I need to wear a suit? Why do I need to do this? And I remember that meeting with Senator Cole, and I remember leaving that meeting and you basically saying, like, you're going number one, basically. You know, you, you hit this out of the park. Mm -hmm. And I think Larry Harris had mentioned to you that, you know, Marvin Williams had shown up in shorts, flip-flops, and a, and a sleeveless T-shirt, which for most people wouldn't be a big deal, but a Senator Cole, who's who's a you know career politician and businessman, was a big deal, and it, and it worked. It you know it worked wonders. The, the rest is history with all that. But I mean, in the moment, I, I definitely was pushing back because I was just so uncomfortable with with that whole realm. I you know I'm very good now, I believe, um, in in a business setting, and I enjoy those settings of networking and meeting people and how to condone myself and conduct myself. But back then, I had no idea. I hated it. I hated um, those those forums because I wasn't comfortable. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know, you know, do I shake this guy's hand? Do I, you know, what do I talk about? Um, you know, do I take my jacket off? Don't I, you know, where do I put my jacket? When I all that kind of stuff. And I guess that was just a part of the learning process to to becoming a professional athlete and and also an adult. Exactly. And look, my my job as an agent, you know, my, my, my sons used to say, dad's a sports agent. And the teacher would say, well, what does that mean? It means he goes to basketball games and takes seven foot players out to steak dinners afterwards. <laughs> Pretty That's close. all they ever saw. Yeah. But the job is, of an agent, as you know, is, you know, we negotiate, what, 5% of the time, 10% of the time. The other 90% is support. It's, you know, it's advising, it's guiding, it's mentoring. It's, you know, getting you marketing deals, but overall just sort of helping you, you know, get through your career. And uh, in your case, you know, we just started early. Yeah, and I think that's a lost art today. I mean, I'll, I'll love to get you on. We'll get you on again down the track to discuss the agency side of, of everything going on in the world. But that's, um, I think it's a lost art these days. There's a lot of big agencies and that's something we'll discuss further on. But another part of the strategy, um, this one 
really blew up on me was the media side of things. So I wasn't horrible at media appearances um, if it was just strictly basketball-based, but I wasn't great. I mean, I wasn't um, a guy that loved talking to the media. So for context, my freshman year in college, Rick Majerus had a rule where freshmen couldn't speak to the media, which actually hurt me because I, I thought it could, you know, if I, if I had that opportunity from day one, make mistakes, you learn as you go. So then all of a sudden, sophomore year, I could talk to the media a little bit. So I was figuring all that out and you know, you obviously were making sure I didn't, I didn't blow any media appearances and say anything silly. Um, but I also remember you telling me the media is going to compare you to big white guys or big white stiffs. They're going to compare you to these guys that are plot up and down the court, kind of similar to what I was probably the last five or six years of my career, to be, to be quite honest. But you were always like play it down. And if the if the media compares you to to to, to someone who's a you know a big white stiff, distance yourself from that. Now I went a little aggressive with that distancing, so. I always had in the back of my mind, if they compare me to any big white guy, I got to say I'm way better than them and, and, and be really super aggressive with that. And I guess a mistake I made in that process was someone brought up Luke Longley and said, you know, Luke Longley is the best Australian to play in the NBA up to this point. How do you compare yourself? And I just kind of went, went to town on poor Luke Longley, who I'm good friends with to this day. And I've, I've laughed many times about this story, but I'd never met Luke um, at that point. And I basically just said, oh, I'm better than him. I'm, I can move faster. I'm a better shot blocker, a better rebounder, a better shooter, whatever, whatever, whatever. So poor Luke Longley's like, you know, five, 10 years in retirement and got this young punk just just railing him while he's in Australia, I assume, just hanging out. And he wasn't too happy with it. Um, I got a lot of I got in a lot of trouble from um guys in the national team. Shane Heal messaged me some like a pretty abusive email at that point, and rightfully so. And um, that was my first foray into making a mistake with the media and saying I, uh, something I probably didn't mean. Um, but as a young fellow, context is king, and I, I didn't relay my message properly. Um, and you remember the, how much that blew up, right? hundred percent. That was uh, at the media day at the draft in New York. And at this point, we knew you were going number one, even though the team didn't tell us. And all you had to do was just get through the day. And you, um, you know, I guess that's why we're on a, a podcast called Rogue, you know, Rogue Bogues. I mean, you just couldn't help yourself. <laughs> and yeah, I didn't. I don't think it really affected me too much NBA draft wise. I mean, but it, it more hurt me that because I'd played in the Olympics last year, so I was around Shane Hill and a lot of these Australian legends. It hurt me a little bit that they were hurt by it, and that's where I was disappointed in myself. But it had been said, and I tried to, no matter what I said after that. That was always the clickbait headline, but that was, like I said, that, that's something that no one can prepare me for. I mean, you, you couldn't sit next to me during media interviews and make sure, oh, no, he's not saying that, he's not saying this. It was just something I had to learn from, and I've made further mistakes throughout my career along the way with, with that, but you know, the bonus of that was I was always honest for the most part, and um, yeah, it's just funny because Luke Longley, obviously, I worked with him the last probably you know five, six, seven years, and, and we have a laugh about it all the time, and um, the most disappointing thing is you, you don't realize how good of a guy Luke Longley is until you meet him. And then the fact that I, I kind of disrespected him um, after the career that he had, three championships and being the staple of Australian basketball kind of hurt hurt my soul a little bit once I once I got back to my room and read it. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing, Andrew, they also asked you questions about Vlade Divac because there were a lot of comparisons, good passer, get up the floor. And, and yet it was different because the Australian media really – went hard on you. I think you dismissed Divots and said, I'm, I'm better than him and faster than him. And it just, it just ended. It, it, it died. 
but the Luke Longley piece had legs. Yeah, and that's that's Australian media, English media, very tabloidy, very clickbaity, and you don't blame him in that, in that context. I, I said what I said, but um, the one other kind of blip but in the if radar. If I can make one point on this, so the the root of this issue with you was always about you know being totally honest. You don't think you didn't think when you were nineteen, and probably now you're thirty six, that people should have filters. And you and I, I remember this specifically, we had to talk about being diplomatic. And I said, you don't always have to say what comes to your mind. And certainly not when it comes to like the media with the draft. And you said to me, you're just a lawyer. and You always parse your words. And you said, I'm honest and I am who I am. I said, okay, fine. But I said, let me give you an example. My wife walks out of the closet and says, David, do I look fat in this dress? If I think the dress is not very flattering, I might say, honey, remember that blue dress you wore last week? You looked stunning in that. Why don't you wear that tonight? So I avoid the question. I don't hurt her feelings. And she gets guidance from me going forward. You told me that was lying. <laughs> and, you know, and I don't know how you are with Jess, but, um, you know, and she's, she's obviously a beautiful woman. But, you know, in life, I think we always sort of, we shouldn't just say what's on our mind. We, we always moder- moderate it. And I think that's what I was trying to teach you, you know, at the very beginning of the process. Uh, and for the most part, you, you handle the media very, very well over the course of your you know, 15 years in the NBA. Yeah, it's, I guess it's hard as a, as a young fellow because um, you just, like, I, like I've mentioned earlier numerous times, you just don't understand the game until you're in it. That it's a lot of it is, and a lot of it I still have a problem with to this day is, you know, it's smoke and mirrors, and it's it's at times like you said, you don't you don't want to answer the question. You got to circle around answering the question. And I, I was always frustrated as a kid by watching politicians and whatnot and saying just answer the question. So I kind of always want to be someone that answered a question, but there's there's a, sometimes you just you just can't do it. And, and especially you know these days, especially with everything going on in the world, there's sometimes things you got to distance yourself from. But I was moving on to the last speed bump we had going into the, the actual draft day. Rick Majerus, my former coach at the University of Utah, freshman year, right after the lottery was announced, really, he put out a statement um, saying that I had a degenerative eye disorder and that I'd go blind in a matter of years. I do have a degenerative eye disorder, but it's very stable. A lot of people have it. It's called keratoconus, and it's basically just my, my cornea is, is, is not as round because I rubbed my eyes a lot as a kid when I had hay fever and my sister had the same thing and, and it can cause a little bit of an issue with your vision, but nothing contacts can't fix. And I, I had some tests in Utah at one point and they, they found it and whatever. And somehow someone put in his head that I was going to go blind. So so he basically re- releases this to the, to the media for some reason um, when he was asked about me, oh, well, he's, he's a good player, but he's going to go, you know, he's going to go blind soon, essentially. So we were then like, what what the hell is going on? I couldn't figure it out because I was like, okay, so what, what's the motive behind that? We found out that he was um, the official workout coach for Deron Williams leading to the NBA draft. We found out that um, he possibly wanted to keep Keith Van Horn as the highest draft pick from the USC Utah ever. So it still would have been coached by Rick Majerus, who was the number two pick. Um, there were other other theories of he had friends in the, in the front office in Utah and he was hoping that I'd you know, do them a favor by talking me down. So I'd slip down a few notches to go to Utah with their their pick. But this was, you know, pretty detrimental to to my stock. And um, I remember you, f- I didn't really know. I didn't, I don't think I even read it. I think you told me about it, but I remember you were real pissed about it, really, really pissed about it. And and then we um, formulated a letter, a cease and desist and, and had to get in touch with him. But take us through, you know, those few weeks. Yeah. So um, you never want to wake up as an agent two weeks 
you know, we're 10 days from the draft and read in the newspaper that uh, your your player's former coach is saying that he's going blind. Um, not something that you want to have to handle um, you know, that close to the draft. But I don't know if you remember this, Andrew. You know, David Falk was very, very close to Rick Majerus, and David represented Keith Van Horn, and one of our other colleagues represented Mike Doliak. So if anybody should have been protected, it would have been you, given Majerus' relationship with with the company at large, which is why I was so angry. And um, as a lawyer, I knew we needed to respond immediately. And as an agent, I knew we needed to get on top of this because sometimes these rumors, you know, have a tendency to uh, to, to get a life of their own. So I did I did write a two-page cease and desist letter, and I also referred it out to outside counsel in case we needed to file a lawsuit and an injunction against the Jarrett. Yeah, it was. I mean, for me, uh, to be honest, I didn't really have any gripes after Majerus left. I mean, it was what it was. I, I didn't thoroughly enjoy playing for him, um, but I enjoyed learning from him. He was one of the best X's and O's guys I've worked with, and I can, you know, I can differentiate things. If I don't like a person, I can still, you know, compliment whether they've done something really well. And he was one of the best X's and O's teachers I had. Now, the other side of things was tough, where, where his day-to-day handling of people and breaking people down was something I don't agree with, but it just, it, it really hurt me because I, I never really had any issue with Majerus after he left. I know he was probably a little bit pissed that I blew up into this All-American player, sweeped all the college awards my sophomore year. People were asking questions and writing articles my sophomore year, like, where has this kid come from? Why didn't we see him play like this his freshman year? Was it Majerus? Blah, blah, blah. So you probably read into that a little bit, but yeah, it just hurt my soul, man. It was just one of those first forays into into the cutthroat business of, of professional sports and and, and how things go and i mean still to this day i don't really have an answer um as to why you know he did that and and what the motives were i mean have have you have you um figured anything out along those lines you know something happened at utah you know i know he he resigned for health reasons but i think that they were sort of pushing him out and this may have been a way to punish not just you but the university as well and um i i don't know i mean you know i i actually i found the letter and here's a line from it we do not know why you would spread such a false and malicious rumor about a player whom you recruited and coached, but whatever the motivation, this conduct on your part must stop immediately. I mean, that's pretty preposterous that we have to tell a grown man who coached you to stop spreading knowingly false rumors. And that that's what hurt me. I, I thought, you know, regardless of how Majerus left Utah, which is a whole separate story I've spoken about um, on record on the My Journeys, it was, I thought he was, you know, I get drafted, I would have almost thanked him um, as an integral part of my journey. Like he toughened me up for sure. And, and, and I learned a lot of things from him just on a day-to-day basis of being accountable and professional. And I thought he was an integral part of my, my, my journey as a, as a man and a basketball player. And that's why it kind of hurt me um, a lot, you know. And like I said, that's just something that you had to, to kind of navigate now. The one kicker with all this, the ramifications of all this was, as, as I'm sure you'd remember, we, we go to do our, our workouts with Milwaukee and Atlanta. Both those teams send me to a an eye specialist. I think the eye specialist appointment went long, went twice as long as my as my on court workout. Yeah, but don't don't forget. Um, I sent you to my personal eye doctor first. That's right. Yeah, we. Yep. I wanted to make sure that we knew what what you had, and uh, and he said it definitely was not macular degeneration. It was the keratoconus, and uh, he recommended contacts. You said you hated wearing contacts. Um, and 
but we knew it wasn't anything major. It was like a thinning of your, of your cornea and it was something that was treatable and manageable. Once we knew that we were in the clear, we had no issue when we went to Milwaukee and Atlanta and their doctors looked at your eyes as well. Yep. And for everyone listening, I still have it to this day and it's been stable for about 15 years, no changes. So I, have to, I get tests once a year and some people have it uh, much worse, but it, it came down to having really bad hay fever as a kid, my sister as well. And you said just one of my eyes just got a battering of me rubbing it and it literally deformed my eyes though, but um, can still see fine, contacts, glasses, uh, even without, I'm not too bad, just reading gets to be a bit of a problem. But so we, we move on from there, uh, not knowing if that was- If gonna... we can stay on this one second, this, Go for it. this conversation really sounds like we were so serious and we were all business, but we did have some fun. That's right. Yeah. I, mean, so, I remember yeah. when, when you went to, uh, to meet Senator Cole, you know, I, I made a recommendation to you, like, why don't you play around with this eye thing? And and so what did you, did you remember what you did when you met him? Yeah, you t- you, at your recommendation, you, you basically said, just when you go to shake his hand, just miss his hand, like you, you can't see properly. And um, I did. <laughs> and then I was acting like I needed to search for his hand, like, where where's your hand? So I can, so I grabbed his hand with my left hand and then, and then put it into my right hand to shake it, acting like I was blind. Um, and he got a kick out of that uh, for an old fella. He had a bit of a laugh. And um, I think that broke the ice as well. It broke the ice about, you know, because there was a lot of, it was in the media and it was all over the place. Um, it was picked up by every national outlet because I was going to be the number one, number two pick. So I think it just broke the ice about how it was just wasn't an issue. And they still did send me, you know, to their specialists and, and have me go through every test under the sun though. I remember after, you know, the media, you know, horde was there after your your workout. Um, they were still asking questions about it. And, you know, was I worried? And I said, even with contacts, you know, his eyesight's like 2015. And, and I made a comment about Majerus and I actually regretted it at the moment it came out of my mouth. But I remember saying something like, you know, uh, Andrew, Rick Majerus saying Andrew is going blind is like, um, is like me saying Rick Majerus is skinny. You know, he was a big guy yeah. and everyone laughed, but it got, it got actually, it got reported and, and, and I was quoted and, and I regretted that because I was like sinking to his level. Yeah. And I love the rogueness. That's what we love on the podcast. So those kind of stories are fantastic. But um, yeah, I mean, not a smooth ride um, by any means, but they're the bumps in the road of getting, this is just to get to the NBA draft. So this is a, a lot of different things that happened. Like I said, I, I went and worked out, my Milwaukee workout went really well. My Atlanta workout went well, but I remember I was sucking air that workout. They put me through the paces. They had me doing all kinds of full court stuff, and I didn't think I did as well there, um, but it didn't really matter because I did so well in Milwaukee. So I ended up going to, to New York City four days before the draft. I mean, I don't know if it's my MO, but I didn't think of myself. The first thing, I don't know if you remember, David, but I, I got you. I said, you need to organize a fishing trip for my dad. I need to take him because they'd been in the States basically the, the whole time in and out. And um, you need to take me or get me somewhere where I can go fishing with my dad. And, and you organized, um, somehow found someone in upstate New York and took us in a, in a little tinny boat, a little tin boat. And we were floating down the river for about five or six hours, just my father and I. And I don't believe we caught a fish. Um, I think the, the stream was too heavy that day and we didn't really catch anything. But um, I just remember coming back sunburnt. So if you look at my draft photos, I mean, I'm 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 as tanned as can be compared to what I usually am. But um, what do you remember about that? Yeah. So um, obviously a very stressful time. So uh, we went up to New York a couple of days before the NBA wanted you up there because you know it was just time. I, I think you guys were just 
emotionally exhausted about the whole process. So you're, you're, you and your dad took an entire day. Um, I think my assistant got to a car service and you just disappeared upstate New York. It's about, I think it was two hours away from the city and it's beautiful up there. And your mom and your aunties, um, stayed in the city. And I think my wife, Elisa took them shopping and took them to some salons and some spas, you know, treatments, things like that. And so everyone was sort of enjoying New York trying to just relax in anticipation of the draft. Yeah, and I, I remember the paparazzi being outside the hotel three or four three or four nights before the draft, trying to get pictures of guys, whatever they're doing. So we tried to calm it down a little bit, but I guess nothing could really prepare you for you know for that day. But um, there were a bit of family dramas, as, as we know with all families. I, had, um, I flew in my auntie from Australia, my auntie from Croatia, my mom, my dad, and my grandmother and my sister. And it, it was new to them as well. They were, they were coming into into a life. Um, you know, the comments that you make are: it's the NBA lottery, not only not only for for the athlete, but for the family. But um, you did a, a really good job of trying to manage that. But at times, it got a little bit out of hand. And and um, God bless your wife as well for for managing a little bit of that as well with the uh, the spa salons and whatnot. You know, it, it's it's human nature, and I think a lot of it was just the stress of the moment. And, um, you know, looking back, I think, you know, anybody who may have, you know, uh, complained or had some issues, you know, would realize that it was just the stress. Um, but, you know, the culmination of this all was that, that post-draft dinner at, remember Kim Bahuni's Italian restaurant? Yep. Shorter. We had, uh, we brought a, yeah, sort of, we brought a, I, I got, I surprised you with a Balkan, a Balkan band playing some Balkan music. We had great Italian food. We had amazing wine flowing all night. And, uh, you and most of your family were hammered. I think I was trying to stay somewhat lucid because we had a early morning private flight to Milwaukee. And then at some point the party was over and it wasn't over for you because you decided that we're going to go to some after hours places. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, trying to hold up a seven foot, 245 pound kid. Um, not the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, no doubt. Let's just circle back. So we, we end up going into the. The draft, obviously the draft night, the way it worked was we, we got there two or three hours before. I think I could have eight on my table. So I think I'd chosen my um, my mom, my dad, yourself, um, Artur Rashkovich, Ray Jacoletti, his wife, my, uh, maybe one or two other people. But a couple of my family members just kind of had to sit in the in the stands of, of, of where the draft, part, the draft night was in Madison Square Garden. And yeah, I mean, it, for me, it was nerve. I was nervous, but... Um, we sit down, we're waiting, this, that. There's there's kind of a bit of animosity looking at, at other guys because you're like, I'm better than him, he's better, you know, whatever. And, and then um, I got called number one. So I didn't have to wait too long. I remember just running up the stairs, shaking David Stern's hand um, or before that embracing everyone on the table, my mum, my dad, you guys for helping. And then, you know, we, we essentially – you know, the first part of the mission was accomplished. We, um, we, uh, the strategy of being the number one pick was fulfilled. We, I believe you grilled Larry Harris um, as much as you could to try and get an answer because some teams will tell you if they're going to take you with, you know, whatever, whatever pick, but um, they wouldn't tell us, right? Yeah. You know, it, it was a strategy on their part, like a marketing strategy. They, they definitely were taking you. Um, I had several people call me and tell me to please calm down, like stop you know, reading Larry the Riot Act, because, you know, as, as an agent, as, as your friend at that point, like it just would have helped for, for us to know that you, you could just take that stress off. Larry, Larry and Senator Cole wanted you to be surprised. So when David Stern said, number one pick in the draft, Andrew Bogut, 
your face would register the shock and the emotion. And after the fact, I sort of understood what he was doing because you were, you did look shocked and it was like exuberance and happiness and it was pure and it wouldn't have been pure if they told us a few hours before. Yeah, no doubt. Even looking back at, at the footage, it was, it was definitely pure. I would have liked to have known, like you said, but it would have maybe ruined the moment. It would have been, a, I'm not, I wasn't a great actor at that point, as we all know. So, um, get drafted, get my name called and then it's, it's business time. Like it's it's crazy what people don't see. You basically go to the back, um, and there's just all these little kind of small like office cubicles. Let's say that all the different TV stations and radio stations and and print journalists and the New York Times and it was straight to media. Like you know doing all these different media stuff. So I honestly don't remember a word I said though that that night. I didn't say anything silly, thankfully, because there wasn't anything that blew up the next day. But it was just a matter of going to all these different TV stations and everyone's kind of asking the same questions. You got to kind of be respectful. And it was a whirlwind. And I, once I got called, um, did that media, I was just, I just wanted to get out of there as quickly as I could because I just wanted to go and celebrate with my family and, and just kind of, it was that, that deep breath of just like, okay, this is over. Like, let's get, let's get to the next thing now. And yeah, we ended up going back to the hotel, um, getting changed and then, and then going to, you know, Kim Bahuni's, you know, very nice Italian restaurant. I think it's still there to this day, but that was a, a long night. The other thing I'd say about that was Drago Pasolic, who's still a good friend of mine to this day. He he ended up being in that draft. He didn't get drafted. Um, he was projected to be possibly second round. He didn't get drafted, and we built a, a pretty special relationship. And I still remember and, and really like this about him. He came to my draft party um, afterwards and celebrated with me with a heavy heart, obviously, from not being drafted. So I don't know if you remember that, David. I do because I remember I think I had to go to his hotel room and, and sort of control him down. And tell him things were going to be okay. That you know everything works out for a reason. You know Drago was a unique situation, unique, unique player. His team had screwed him over, and I think he came to DC to start training in January or February, which is just very, very early in the process. But uh, he did come down. He did. Uh, he was happy for for you, his friend, and you know for you guys to be friends sixteen years later is a testament to that friendship. Yeah, and too many drinks that night. Um, a lot of fun times. I remember. Like you said, we, we found somewhere else to have a few more drinks. We finally left there and um, it all almost all ended for me in New York City. <laughs> I had way too many drinks and went across the road without looking and almost got collected by a taxi. Uh, my sister was the one who was like, had me by the arm, thankfully, and pulled me back. And it would have been a pretty quick uh, number one pick career at that point. Crazy. And then I don't remember how we got you back to the hotel, but you had... You had to get up and be downstairs, I think, at 9 o'clock for Senator Cole's plane. And you were nowhere to be found because you were just totally passed out and hungover. Oh, yeah. I was very, very hungover. I think uh, most of the food that I ate that night was next to me on the bed. I remember my sister, I think, coming in and trying to get me cleaned up, like just in a half, you know, woken up state, um, basically rolled me um, into my first ever private jet, which was awesome. I think I went – I don't think my parents came out for all that. I think it was myself and just – was it just you and I, right? I think so. And it was you and me and, and uh, Skip, who was the uh, community relations director of the team at the time. Yep. So then, yeah, basically flown straight back to Milwaukee, um, was in town there for about, I mean, three, three, four, five days, uh, meeting everyone in the organization, still no workouts, none of that stuff. And then um, they were in a, in a period where they had they had a coach that um, they said was, uh, <laughs> this was crazy about Milwaukee. So I met with, with Terry Porter, who was their coach at that time. I met with him in my pre-draft workouts, and then I think 
it might have been a couple of weeks after that they they fired they fired him and and um you know hired Terry Stotts, which was my first foray into the business like nature of uh, of the NBA. Yeah, and uh, and you know they they figured a change would be good. Um, and I think you had maybe like a week off before summer league started. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, I think we took you to the we had a beach house. I think we took you to the beach so you could just sort of surf and just you know, be a 19-year-old for the first time in a very, very long time. Yeah, and it was just some time to kind of relive the craziness of the last three months. I mean, for those people that don't understand, I mean, from the moment I finished college to getting drafted was just crazy. It was just a lot of pressure, even those daily workouts. You count down the days, the lottery, then the draft, and then workouts, and then everything just built up. And there was, you know, you had all this pressure and um, anxiety and nerves without even playing a a bloody NBA game, which was kind of crazy. And then, you know, I end up going back to Milwaukee and have my first kind of, it was back then it was called the veterans training camp, which would be a summer league camp. And then they'd bring in some potential veterans they'd sign um, coming to the next season, mainly fringe guys, still a few NBA bodies there. So I remember, you know, being part of all that and then going to summer league and, and not knowing what to expect. And it was, um, you know, I think you remember it and you, you mentioned it in some of our notes that, you know, my first game was just was just awful and, and, and you know, those those kind of articles came out straight after it. Yeah, it was uh, – Summer League now is typically uh, – it's either in Utah or mo- it's mostly in, La- in Las Vegas. Um, back then, it was in different places. It was in Orlando and this particular one was in Minnesota. And I was sitting in the stadium watching your first game, excited to see you out there. And you were just very, very rusty, understandably so. And this is where I started kicking myself saying, this is my fault because I didn't let him play five on five for the past three and a half months. Yeah, and it was exactly that. I think I finished with four and five maybe. I don't even know what I had, but it was awful. I ended up finding my legs a little bit in that summer league. I I remember I got ejected from my second game in summer league. So my second- Uh, Yeah, it was the fourth game. Yeah, you got into a fight. Yeah, man, a guy bowed me. Some guy that's not in the league, just a fringe guy, elbowed me in the head under the basket and- I put him back on his ass and then got thrown out. And I thought it was the end of the world after that. I remember going back to the locker room, like, holy shit, I'm going to get in so much trouble. Like, what's coach going to say? And, you know, they came back to the locker room and it was just another normal night in the NBA for the most part, which yeah, I was like, I guess they see that kind of the shit. The Bucks were happy to see that, though. They were really pleased you did that because that shows that you don't take crap from anybody. Yeah. And, and look, finished summer league pretty respectably, had a few games, a few double-doubles, and, and then started to show what I could do. And that was kind of the off season and lead up to the draft. But look, I mean, I want to get you on to provide a lot of context. Um, we're still friends to this day and, and still speak a, a fair bit. I, I somewhat saw your kids grow from the age that my kids are now to, to adults. They're both, both at, um, you know, gone to university and, and, and bettering themselves in that aspect. But um, I also just wanted to thank you. I think um, not only from a point of view of, of, you know, signing big money contracts and helping me through that. But I think, you know, taking me from a boy to a man with the things we spoke about, learning how to put a suit on, different things, you know, talking me off off the ledge in the middle of an NBA season, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I thanked you towards the end of my career when I retired and sent you some some things as a thank you. But, you know, this is a, a great forum to do that. But um, we will we'll definitely look to to get you on throughout um because you've seen you know behind the scenes stuff about you know when i had really good years and bad years so we'll definitely get you on down the track but i mean is there anything else you want to relay um nba draft wise for that 2005 year i have a couple of funny stories if you'll uh, you'll allow i don't know if you remember this but 
we did used to joke around because you, know, you can't just take all this stuff seriously. So, you know, you introduced me to Borat and Bruno and Ali G and we used to watch some of the clips and the shows and I loved your sense of humor. It's very dry sense of humor. And, you know, and I, I think I, I can be funny from time to time, but there was one time there was a reporter that was sitting down with us and she, you could just tell she needed a scoop. She, she needed to make her name and she needed to find that one thing about the top pick that nobody else knew. And so we, we'd sort of play around with her a little bit and, you know, you know, I think you'd start it. like, look, there's really nothing special about me. I, my family's from Croatia. They emigrated to Australia. I came to the U.S. to play. And, and then I said, yeah, I said, and the fact that he did all this, despite being born with only one liver, is just a testament to all of his hard work and determination. And she starts writing furiously in her notepad. She's like, oh my God, he only has one liver. <laughs> and we're looking at each other. Do you remember this? I do. Yeah. We're looking at each other. She's literally about to run to her, you know, her producer to start running with the story. And then finally, we're like, look, you know, miss, everybody's born with one liver. We're just, we're just messing with you. Yeah, um, which, but those are the kind of things that we would do. Yeah, and if you don't know the context or don't know us personally, it, it actually can get us in some trouble because if she would have ran with it, then there's ramifications of it. But I think you want to enjoy kind of the journey along the way, and I think we we definitely had a lot of laughs. I mean, I used to look forward to to flying out to Washington D.C. or your base whenever we play the Wizards and just catching up and talking shit. And um, now nah, was a good time, and, and and a lot of the people that we met along the way. Um, one Artur Rushkovich story I will mention is I think after we'd signed. Um, or it might have been, yeah, it might have been leading up to the draft. We all went out to, I don't know where it was, where we were. I think we were in Atlanta. We all went out to to dinner one night. And um, so this is a Serbian fella, really, you know, cultured European-wise. And and do you remember we, we, we had, this is my first foray into how crazy he was. Um, they brought the the American tradition of bringing out your um, your bill or your check before you've kind of asked for it. I guess in you know <laughs> yeah. in Europe that is heavily frowned upon because it's a sign of disrespect. It's, it's kind of a sign of like, hey, you finished your meal, get the hell out of our restaurant. We've got other people to serve. Do you remember what happened that night? Uh, I think he, if I remember correctly, he in his like you know mafia like persona told the waiter, "You stay over there in the corner." And if you see me raise my hand, that means you come over here. Otherwise, you stay right there. Is that is that sort of what that happened? Was, that was during the meal. <laughs> so, <laughs> for our listeners <laughs> that haven't been to America, um, they, American waitresses and waiters work on tips. So, sometimes, you know, if you're trying to have a conversation, they, they, they're doing the right thing. They come out every five or ten minutes. Do you need a drink? Do you need anything? And sometimes it gets a little frustrating because you're mid-conversation. So, he lost it halfway through the meal at the dude and just like put him in his box but then this poor guy's brought out he's brought out the bill after desserts had come out and alex has picked up the whole check the leather checkbook or whatever they brought it out and thrown it across the room and i'm sitting there like looking at david i'm looking at my parents my, my dad's like rolling laughing like this dude's this dude's hilarious i think you might have been a little embarrassed like oh what the hell's going on but just another funny memory i had because he just would not take the the disrespect of trying to get kicked out of the restaurant yeah, that, I, I do remember his antics, but uh, he and I were, were a good partnership, a good team. Uh, well, one more funny story. You remember the Gatorade? No, Gatorade. Oh, the so, showed up at your house? Yeah, so we got you a Gatorade <laughs> deal for your training because you love Gatorade. So um, so the question was, do we bring it to your hotel or do we bring it to my house? I said, I'll bring it to the house. This way I can give Andrew like you know a couple bottles here and there and when he needs it. 
So you and I are down at Georgetown. I'm watching your workout. My wife calls me and Felicia says, David, there's a delivery here. It's, it's Gatorade. I said, yeah, it's just you know, put it in the garage. And when I come home, she goes, you don't understand. It's not a case of Gatorade. It's a pallet of, of the Gatorade. I said, a pallet? Like, okay, so just put it in the garage. It was like 250 cases of Gatorade. Yeah, it was like 3,000 like bottles yeah. that they delivered. It was insane. <laughs> and so like, my kids loved it. I mean, everybody loved it. You and Drago are drinking like, I don't know, 15 of these things a day. And after about two weeks, you tell me, you know, my teeth are really killing me. And I remember saying to you, when's the last time you went to a dentist? He said, I don't know, a couple of years ago when I was in Australia. So we took you to our family dentist. You must have had about 15 cavities. <laughs> I still got some to this day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember that. I remember going to the dentist and, and even the dentist was like, man, what the hell have you been doing? I'm like, hey, working out and drinking Gatorade. So they brought in, those, <laughs> they brought in the Gatorade lights later on. So they were, they were more, uh, more, for, more foray after that. But um, look, thanks well, again. I David. have a lot more funny stories, but these are, I'm saving these stories for my own book. You can't, you can't have all the glory, Andrew. Oh no, we'll get you on. This is just draft year. All we've discussed is draft year. We still have a, a lot of different things to get through down the track when I'll, I'll bust your balls and getting you back on. But as I said, Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. It's David Bellman, um, integral part of kind of my journey, and, and that's why he's on. But um, thanks again, David. My pleasure, Andrew. I'll talk to you soon. Give Jess and the kids my best. All right. Once again, a very, very special thank you to David Bellman for joining us on the seventh episode of the My Journey series here at Rogue Bogues. We will definitely get him on again, not only in the My Journey series for different phases of my career, but we'll also get him on f- hopefully to discuss um everything to do with business and the nba um and how it's changed and what he's seen i mean it's a guy that's worked in the nba for 20 30 40 years in some capacity starting as an intern working for, for the agent michael jordan was with so he's seen a lot and i'd love to pick his brain on a lot of different things so stay tuned for that where does this leave me so we talk about basically the end of that that interview was was summer league going through that Right when that ended, I basically hadn't had time off for, for a number of years, really. So I, I actually went to, to Croatia and spent that time with Drago Pašalic, who was um, who we discussed in that um, in that interview. He was, you know, the guy I worked out with all up until the draft, and he unfortunately didn't get drafted. Um, but he was back in Croatia at the time. Lives on the island of Brač, Ball, fantastic part of the world, one of the nicest beaches you'll find. So I spent some time with his family. My family were over there as well, and then um, I spent about two weeks there just doing nothing. And then came back to Australia and started working out um, to get ready for my my rookie NBA season. Um, so that was when you know the frustration started about trying to find a, a, a specific place to train in Australia, um, which would then tie into later on opening you know my own academy, my own basketball facility down in the southeast suburbs of Melbourne, which we'll get into a bit later on in the further episodes. But that's where this episode ends. The next step is is getting on the plane after some some preseason training in Australia individually. Going into my rookie season, my first training camp, I get to Milwaukee, I think late August to prepare for training camp, which was starting the 1st of October. So that will wrap up episode seven. I appreciate everyone tuning in. Like I said, I hope you got a lot out of that interview with David because there was, there was more to it than just the my journey and, and talking about my career, there was um, a lot of gems in there. And whether you're an aspiring businessman, agent, um, basketball player, basketball coach, I think it really um, unlocks a whole lot of different things for you to, to, to enjoy. So once again, thank you. We're at um, Rogue Bogues on all your favorite social media 
platforms, one word, Rogue Bogues. Um, we're on all the favorite um, podcast platforms that you'd, you'd find most podcasts. So keep keep listening. I believe where the basketball podcast is doing very, very well. We're, we're number one, the number one basketball podcast in Australia right now, which is fantastic. So um, hopefully this my journey kind of um, – you know, autobiography of, of my life is being enjoyed because I've, I've definitely enjoyed telling the stories.